Uh, we're so grateful uh, to be together and to dive into this text together. Let me pray for us one more time. Lord, thank you again uh, for uh, your church, and thank you for the word that you've given us this morning in Daniel 10. We're grateful for it, and we pray that you would continue to form and shape us according to your word by the power of your spirit. Uh, we thank you for this time. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So it is daylight savings, and uh, one of the things that goes along with that is that the weather uh, is getting colder. Uh, in some ways, that is bad news uh, for me because, I, you know, I'm thankful for all the seasons, of course, you have to say that, but uh, I'm really like a spring and summer guy. <laughs> I love uh, the warm weather. I love the feeling of just the sun coming down and, you know, being outside in shorts and sitting outside late at night, and I just really enjoy it. And uh, Catherine, my wife, uh, she enjoys all this as well, but, but the spring and summer do introduce a point of tension uh, for us because the spring and summer is typically the season uh, when ants start to appear. And while ants are normally outside, as you all know, sometimes they make their way uh, into our homes. And the tension comes in because, you know, I don't like welcome the ants into the house, but also they don't really bother me uh, that much. And if I see an ant in the house, I might do something about it or I might just kind of continue on. Uh, with my day. But this is not how Catherine handles ants. When she sees an ant, even if it's just one, we immediately enter into a period of investigation. How many ants are there? Where did the ants come from? Did we do anything to encourage the ants? How can we change our behavior so that this never happens again? I I'm not sure why the ants bother her so much. Conveniently, she is not here this week uh, to defend herself, which is good. But I think she just might change her mind uh, about ants when she reads uh, the article that I sent her uh, the other day. It was an article about some uh, researchers who, who found uh, an abandoned anthill. Perhaps some of you have seen this. Uh, they wanted to know what was going on down there beneath the surface. And so they had an idea. They took three days and they pumped 10 tons of cement into this anthill. And once they pumped all this cement down into uh, the ground, they were able to, to bring in heavy equipment and dig away all the dirt around it to reveal what was down there. And the results, what they found beneath the surface, were, were stunning. They found this, this intricate, well-designed system of, of roads and, and transportation routes that took like the shortest route possible to the places that the ants needed to go, gardens, trash pits, places like that. There were main routes, there were side routes, there were tunnels that were designed to, to ensure ventilation for the ants. And what had happened is the ants had moved 40 tons of dirt to build what was basically an underground city, and all of it was going on without anybody walking around on the ground having the least idea what was happening beneath their feet. Sure, they, they may have seen the occasional stray ant or even a little anthill, but what was actually going on was far beyond what they could imagine. We're continuing today in our series on the book of Daniel. Today we come to Daniel 10, which means we are entering into the home stretch of this book. And you might remember that in the early chapters of Daniel, which we covered in the spring, they were full of, uh, you know, narrative, uh, history, and stories of, of things that happened to Daniel and his friends uh, after they were taken into exile in Babylon. And now, here we are in the back half uh, of the book, and we are looking more at the visions that were given to Daniel, and now we're approaching uh, the final vision that's going to take us all the way from this chapter, chapter 10, to the end of the book in chapter 12. And so what we're going to do today in chapter 10 is really hear the introduction to this last grand vision, what was going on when, when Daniel received it. 
And even, I think, in this introduction uh, to the vision, there, there's so much for us to learn about our God and, and how he interacts uh, with us. I think one of the best parts of Daniel 10 is that we are reminded that there's so much going on that, that we don't know about and that we don't see. And I think this can feel frustrating uh, to us at times, but I think this passage will show us why this is actually good news and it will help us to see what it looks like to live in response to having a God like this. So we're basically going to look at this passage in two sections, verses 1 to 9 and then 10 to 21. I'm going to read verses 1 to 9 again, then we'll focus on that. It says, In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belteshazzar. And the word was true, and it was a great conflict. And he understood the word and had understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Euphaz around his waist, his body like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great trembling fell upon them, and they fled to hide themselves. So I was left alone and saw this great vision, and no strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed, and I retained no strength. Then I heard the sound of his words, and as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in deep sleep with my face to the ground. So what happens here is that the scene is set for us. We are in a different time now. It says we're in the third year of Cyrus. Now, I know as we've been going through Daniel, we've all been like brushing up on our ancient Near Eastern history, but in case it helps, I'll remind you that Cyrus was the emperor of Persia, and it was Persia who defeated Babylon, which was the nation that had defeated the nation of Judah and the city of Jerusalem. So Cyrus is now in charge of the people in Babylon, and that included the Jewish exiles like Daniel. And we're reminded here that that Daniel is indeed still in exile because he is referred to as Belteshazzar, which is the Babylonian name uh, that he was given all the way back in Daniel 1. And Daniel is now about 85 years old. And seeing that Cyrus is in his third year also gives us an idea of some other events uh, that were going on that that are not mentioned directly here in Daniel, but help us to understand this passage. Because some of you might remember that when Cyrus came to power, he allowed the Jewish people who were in exile to return back to their home. And, And many of them, not all of them, but many of them went. And one of the things they did when they got there was they worked to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. However, this work was met with with lots of opposition, and it was slowed down significantly. And you can read all about that process in in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. And that's just important for us to know, because even though it's not directly spoken about here, we can kind of surmise that Daniel uh, was in mourning because his people, who he loved very much, were struggling. Remember, we already saw back in Daniel 8 just how much Daniel identified himself with his people. He was weeping and confessing not just his own sin in that chapter, but the sins of the nation that he was part of. And even though he had been away from his home for decades, his heart was still very much with his people because his people were those beloved and chosen by God. 
and their victories were his victories, and their struggles were his struggles. And it's a small picture, as Max prayed and as we talked about with the new members, it's a, it's a small picture of the life we are called to in the church, to not just function like as a group of, of separate individuals, but to be knit together that indeed when one of us rejoices, we all rejoice. When one of us weeps, we all weep. And we also get a clue as to what is going on, not just from what year it is, but from what time of year it is here in Daniel 10. We see that it's the first month of the year, which is the time of Passover. And some of you know Passover was the time when the people of Israel remembered their deliverance and their exodus from slavery in Egypt. And now we see that once again the Jewish people have been delivered, but they are struggling greatly. And so we can think, you know, at this time of year, Daniel may have especially had his people on his heart. So as I know, you know, many of you are, uh, I'm, I'm a sports fan, and an interesting thing I've, I've noticed over the years is, is how much sports fans want uh, the players that they cheer for to, to reflect their emotions uh, properly. I think that's especially the case in our city of Philadelphia. So, you know, if the Eagles, Phillies, Sixers, one of our teams lose a big game, generally speaking, I think, I think we're okay with it, unless what happens, unless we see one of the players smiling after the game. We have, I mean, I've seen it again and again. We have no patience, no tolerance for that. Why is he smiling? They lost, you know. When that happens, I mean, look out. Prepare, prepare for rage. And while it can be, I think, a little bit silly at times, obviously, I think there is some aspect of truth that we experience in those feelings that we understand that, that we as human beings are embodied and we should express our bodies in a way that suits the situation. And I think that's very much what we see from Daniel here, we see that there is something upsetting going on, and Daniel's physical demeanor reflects this. Even though he's not there in Jerusalem with his people, he shows his unity with them by, by mourning with and for them. And so he mourns uh, for three weeks, and this is expressed not just in his mind, but through his body. We see that he changes his diet, and while, while he doesn't do a strict fast here, he, he does refrain from eating those, those good things that he has access to. There's no meat, there's no wine. And it says he doesn't anoint himself at all, which might not sound uh, that drastic to us, but anointing yourself with oil was extremely important in a dry climate because it was a way to keep your skin from becoming dry and cracked. So even before we see what happens next, I, you know, there's a couple things that we can learn here from Daniel. First, I think we see the importance, as Daniel was mourning, we see the importance of lament. Now, I don't think I'm breaking any news here when I say lament is something that we tend to struggle with uh, as a culture. When something goes wrong, our, our default is, is usually not lament, but we usually go right to anger. And while there is a time and place, of course, for, for anger over the things that God himself is angry about, if we go to anger without a long pit stop, in the place of lament, it's pretty much a guarantee that our anger uh, will, uh, will, be very, will not be righteous. And so when we see and experience you know, the brutal things happening, whether it's in the Middle East in our, or in our own culture or in our own lives, it's really good for us to learn to simply to weep and lament. Uh, there, there's a book that I love that, that talks about life uh, in this world. The title itself says so much, title is not the way it's supposed to be. It's so good for us uh, to recognize, along with Daniel, that things are not the way they're supposed to be, and to respond and lament. That's very much what Daniel is doing here. 
And second, uh, and this is something I think we see throughout the chapter, which is really interesting because there's a lot of spiritual things going on, uh, is the importance of our bodies in responding to both God and the world. Daniel's mourning and grief is basically embodied worship. And what is happening uh, in his heart is expressed through his whole person, not, not as a means of, of like acting or putting on a show or manipulating those around him, but simply because he is a whole person, body and soul. And I think this is something, again, that, that we can struggle with sometimes, maybe in our subculture. You know, we're Presbyterians. I think our much-deserved reputation is that we can really emphasize the mental aspects of following Jesus, which in itself uh, is very good. We just need to also remember at times that God made us as bodies and that our bodies are very important. And without laying down like hard and fast rules, that helps us to, to be thoughtful about how we involve our bodies in our worship and in our response to God. So it might help us to think about things like, like our posture when we pray, or it might help us to think about the importance and goodness of, of food and eating with others, or the goodness and importance, as we see in this passage, of fasting, or the goodness of bodily rest and the goodness of engaging our bodies in our work and in our worship. The well-known author uh, C.S. Lewis understood this. He, he said this, he said, Christianity is almost the only one of the great religions which thoroughly approves of the body, which believes that matter is good, that God himself once took on a human body, that some kind of body is going to be given to us even in heaven and is going to be an essential part of our happiness, our beauty, and our energy. So now that you've, you've heard this and, and seen this, notice as we go through the rest of our passage how much the body, the physical body, is emphasized, including in what Daniel sees, starting in verse 5. We see that Daniel lifted his eyes, and what he sees has a profound effect on him. And he sees this, this man clothed in linen. He sees a belt of gold, a face like lightning, eyes like flaming torches, arms and legs like burnished bronze, words like the sound of a multitude. Now, as usual, with, with several passages uh, in Daniel, I think there's a lot of debate about what's going on here. And, and the debate here is, is, what is it that Daniel is seeing? Whether or not Daniel is beholding like an angel, or whether this is what's known as a theophany. As one author puts it, defines it this way, an intense manifestation of the presence of God, accompanied by an extraordinary visual display. Now, the Bible says that no mere human can see the face of God and live, but we do see in the Old Testament that, that God does allow humans at times to get a certain glimpse of, of his presence, of his glory. And again, like so many other things in Daniel, there, there's, there's, there's arguments kind of either way. I think Daniel is experiencing a, a theophany here. I think in some way he's beholding an appearance of God himself. And I think this is true because there are many parallels here to other language in the Bible, and I think also because of the way that Daniel responds to the vision. You know, we hear multiple times that Daniel's strength is taken away, that his appearance is fearfully changed. We see that even though he's the only one who saw the vision, it was so powerful that even those who, who were with him, who, who didn't even see the vision, were greatly affected, and they, and they feel the need to hide. And we hear that Daniel falls into a deep sleep with his face to the ground, all of which are things that are consistent with other times that God appears in a certain way. And so we're reminded really here just what it means to encounter God. And we're reminded that, that it is not a light thing. 
There's an awesomeness to encountering God that, that just kind of undoes people when they encounter him. And it, it's interesting, you know, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago when we were looking at Mark 6, when, when Jesus walks on the water, uh, encountering God is in many ways deeply unsettling. And this unsettling is a big part of the story, but it's not the only part. And we see this in the rest of our passage in verses 10 to 21. It says, And behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright, for now I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. Then he said to me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days for the vision is for days yet to come. When he had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face towards the ground and was mute. And behold, one in the likeness of the children of man touched my lips, and I opened my mouth and spoke. I said to him who stood before me, O Lord, by reason of the vision, pains have come upon me, and I retain no strength. How can my Lord's servant talk with my Lord? For now no strength remains in me, and no breath is left in me. Again, one having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me. And he said, O man greatly loved, fear not. Peace be with you. Be strong and of good courage. And he spoke to me. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, Let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Then he said, Do you know why I have come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side against these except Michael, your prince. So we see that Daniel in a deep sleep is touched by a hand and that now he is trembling, which, which makes sense given what Daniel has just encountered. And we see here uh, in these verses a rhythm that is so common in the Bible and such an important part of the biblical story. After one of God's people is overwhelmed by who he is, this person is then encouraged and strengthened for what is ahead. These words here, we believe at this point, there's a shift from maybe a theophany before, but now this is an angel talking to God, and we'll talk about why that is in a minute. But these words from the angel to Daniel are so important for us to understand the character of God. The angel says to Daniel that he is greatly loved, and he's encouraged to stand you know, it's interesting to think about all the ways that this angel could have addressed Daniel, and that yet this is fundamentally how Daniel is known to God, as a man greatly loved. As we say often, that there's no one like God who, who is great and awesome beyond all comprehension, and no one like God who will love you personally in the way that he does. And this is so important because this is something I think we can all wrestle with deeply even on the, the, the human level, we often ask ourselves and wonder, you know, are we actually loved? Are we liked? Or do other people just, just kind of put up with us and tolerate us? Kelly Capick, uh, in his excellent book, You're Only Human, says this feeling can kind of seep into the way that we think about God. He says sometimes 
we, we might think, quote, maybe the best we can hope for is that God will put up with us if we keep our heads down and hang around with Jesus. But one of the beautiful things about this passage is that Daniel is defined and marked multiple times as one who is greatly loved. And Christian, we just need to know as we go through this that, that this is true of you as well. And if you are here today and you're not following Jesus, I would just ask you to, to look and see what Daniel goes through here, being undone by God and then being encouraged and restored by God. See, when the time comes, you want to experience both of those steps of being undone by his holiness and awesomeness and being encouraged by his love and kindness. And I would say there is nothing worse and nothing more dreadful than only experiencing the first. There's nothing better than experiencing both and experiencing the love and mercy of this awesome and powerful God. Because Daniel is greatly loved, he is assured here that he has been heard. We know that, that, that Daniel has humbled himself. He's been crying out to God now for three weeks. And he may have been wondering during those three weeks if God actually heard him. And this is something, of course, we can feel deeply as well as we consider our prayers, especially those that, that seem to be unanswered for perhaps much longer than three weeks. And Christian, you can know that, that what is true of Daniel is true of you. Because you are deeply loved, you are absolutely heard. Because you are deeply loved, you are absolutely heard. And I know, right, it's so easy for us uh, to wrestle with prayer. How does it work? How does it fit in uh, to what God is doing in the world? And, and that's not a, a bad thing for us to consider. But what is fundamental is, is that we know that he absolutely hears us and that he does, in fact, work through our prayers in a mysterious way. And the angel makes this clear. He even says uh, to to Daniel, that his prayers have been heard. And not only that, but Daniel's prayers are the reason that the angel is there. All of this is happening, in a sense, because Daniel prayed. Uh, my wife, Catherine, who I already mentioned, I'll mention her again, she's an identical twin. And she grew up hearing about how her grandmother prayed that Catherine's parents would have twins. And she always loved this story, right, growing up. So much so that in her high school yearbook, you know, they let you put a little quote in there. For part of Catherine's quote, very sweetly, it says, what if grandmommy hadn't prayed? And when Catherine's grandmother traveled uh, from Texas to New Jersey uh, for Catherine and her sister Rebecca's high school graduation, <laughs> Catherine showed her uh, that quote. And Catherine's grandmother read the quote and said very sweetly to Catherine, that's very nice, but I actually prayed for twin boys. True story. <laughs> so, okay. So what role did, did the prayers play there? I think that just reminds us there is a deep mystery to prayer. There are deep questions in all of this, as we said, about how prayer works. And, and really, I think that's true of anything that we do. How, does, how, does, how do our prayers, how does what we do fit into God's overall it. You know, if he's in control, he's sovereign, uh, as we say, where does that leave us and our actions, including our prayers? And the late uh, Tim Keller wrote a really good book on prayer. I thought he said it really well, talking about how we think about God being in control and yet also us being responsible and, and him working through our prayers. He says this, he says, these two facts are true at once and how that is possible is a mystery to us. We feel that if God is completely in control, 
then our actions don't matter, or vice versa. But think how practical this is. If we believed that God was in charge and our actions meant nothing, it would lead to discouraged passivity. On the other hand, we really believe that our actions changed God's plan. It would lead to paralyzing fear. If both are true, however, we have the greatest incentive for diligent effort, and I would say diligent prayer, and yet we can always sense God's everlasting arms under us. In the end, we can't frustrate God's good plans for us. See, prayer is a great mystery, but, but what great dignity and what a great privilege we have to participate in what God is doing. See, part of how we know that God loves us is because he involves us in what he is doing. And another part of how we know that God loves us is that he doesn't make it so it all rests upon our shoulders because we're just not meant to bear that kind of load. We're not. And part of the mystery of prayer is that we have the privilege of entering into the unseen world. And that's really what much of the rest of our passage is about. See, this angel here is peeling back the curtain a little bit on what is going on behind the scenes. The angel explains the three-week delay in coming to Daniel uh, in that uh, the prince of the king of Persia withstood him for 21 days. Now, I said earlier, I think this is an angel speaking here, and this is really the main reason I, I think this is true, because God himself, I think, would not have been held up by anyone or anything uh, for 21 days. But basically, this angel here was held up due to a battle that he had to fight, and it was a, a battle that involved not just this angel, but also the great angel Michael. And this was a battle that, that was also against another spiritual being, the prince of the kingdom of Persia. Now, we're going to read a section like this, and I think it's going to lead us to more questions than answers, and I think that's okay. I also think Max was very wise last week to remind us that when we're dealing with passages like this, to focus not on all the little details, right, but to understand the big picture and what it reveals. And I think what this passage reveals for us is that there is just so much going on in the spiritual realm that we don't even know about but that we actually participate in all of it in a mysterious and good way, especially through our prayers. Earlier we said that it was good news that we have bodies, and we continue to see an emphasis, I think, on the body throughout this section as Daniel is touched and strengthened multiple times by this angel. But I would say it's also good news that our bodies and the physical realm is not all that there is, because we know that God is in control of the spiritual realm as well. And so it's okay for us not to understand it fully because we know that God is there. It's not out of his control. And he is working in both the physical and spiritual realm to bring about good for his people. You know, we see here that there are indeed evil spirits, evil forces that are waging war against God and against the church. And when we pray every week for things like the persecuted church, we need to remember that, that there is indeed this, this evil that is in many ways behind these things. But we also know from this passage and so many others that God will not let those evil forces win. Now all of this is a lot for Daniel. He's understandably overwhelmed by everything he's seen and heard. And it's so good to see that, that, that this spiritual being who, who was sent, has been sent by God, a spiritual being so powerful and one who is so involved in great spiritual battles, is also the one who patiently attends to Daniel and cares for him and reminds him in verse 19 of how greatly he is loved. And that in this state of being loved, he is to have strength. He is to have courage. And Daniel is indeed 
given strength. And the angel says that he will soon return to the spiritual battle with the prince of Persia and eventually the prince of Greece. And now we're finally getting to the point where Daniel is ready to hear the main vision that will occupy our attention in chapters 11 and 12. We won't get to that vision today, but you can definitely pray for Max as he dives into it because it is incredibly complicated. But we're set up to hear this vision because we're going to take with us three fundamental truths that help us to receive and consider this vision. Number one, that there is both a spiritual, a physical and spiritual realm and that both are important and both are cared about by God. Number two, that God is absolutely in control of everything that happens in both realms. And that number three, God hears and responds to the cries and the mourning and the lament of his beloved people. You know, when we think about that third truth, it's interesting uh, to just to see and to consider how Daniel is involved in all of this. We see that in this passage, he, he physically and spiritually presents himself to God. And God works through this, often in unseen ways, in order to care for and deliver his people. And when we think about Daniel living in this way, it's hard not to think of how Jesus would do these things in a much greater way long after Daniel came and went. You know, we remember how Jesus embraced the goodness of bodily creation by being born in human flesh and how he did these things. He ate, he drank, he fasted, he lived in his body, and he helped other people with their bodies. He fed them, he healed them, he cared for them. And we remember that Jesus embraced the spiritual nature of reality, receiving the care and attention of angels when he was struggling, casting out demons that were tormenting people and spending time praying to his Father for his people and teaching his disciples to do the same. And just as Daniel lamented over what was happening in Jerusalem as the people struggled to rebuild the city, so Jesus laments over Jerusalem, weeping over how the people he had come to save rejected him. And see, Jesus brings all of this together when he goes to the cross. He physically presents his body to be nailed on a Roman cross in order to win a great spiritual victory, the ultimate spiritual victory, the forgiveness of our sins, the restoration of our relationship with the God who created us, and the defeat of all of God's enemies, both physical and spiritual. As we read earlier in the service in Colossians 2, as he disarmed the rulers and authority and put them to open shame. And that victory that he won on the cross was the beginning of a much fuller victory because as we confessed in our confession of faith earlier, Jesus will indeed return someday with his holy angels to judge the world in righteousness and to make all things new. See, Daniel, as we saw today, knew what it was to live in a world where all was not right. We remember that he spent the great majority of his life in exile. And yes, he had the privilege of seeing many of his people return to the land that God had promised them only to hear that when they got there, they continued to struggle. And so part of Daniel's life was a life of lament. And see, just as we experience hard things in our own lives, and there are many of them, so part of our life is lament as well. But we lament knowing that God hears us, knowing that there is much more to the story, and knowing that our lament leads us to hope and that this hope will lead us home as we follow Jesus 
and wait for his return together. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful and thankful for the way that you love and care for us, that we would be greatly loved by you is wondrous and amazing, and we're so thankful that we can experience that love together. And we also thank you that you involve us in ways that are mysterious and complicated, but we are so thankful that you do. And Lord, help us to become a people more and more that is shaped uh, by prayer, to see the great importance and to see the great privilege that we have in coming to you and participating in this way. And we are so thankful that you rule sovereignly over all things and that you are bringing history uh, to a very, very good ending that we look forward to. In the meantime, Lord, help us to lament that that day is not here, but help us to do so with hope. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.